it was all kind of falling apart. And at that time, rehearsal was from 2.30 to 4 o'clock. And at 4 o'clock, Dave would just leave rehearsal. Like he, His schedule was kind of on a train, you know, it was never bent. Like he just did his thing as he should have been. And he leaves. And we don't have a show at that point. We tape at 5.30. There's, we don't have a show. And I've, you know, whatever, 100 crew members and the director and the producers are all now looking at me of like, what are we doing? Like, we haven't settled on this. And I'm, you know, panicking. And I remember going up to Dave's office and saying, I said, what should we, what, what should we be doing? And he looked at me and said, this is supposed to work the other way around. And he turned and walked away. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Mentors on the Mic podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in TV, film, commercials, and off-Broadway. And every week I bring you an incredible mentor in entertainment, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. Thanks for listening and let the episode begin. Welcome, welcome everyone to another episode of Mentors on the Mic. I am thrilled to introduce you to our next mentor, Rob Burnett. Rob is a writer, director, and five-time Emmy Award-winning executive producer and former head writer for The Late Show with David Letterman. Heard of him? Bet you have. Over the course of his career, he has received a total of 30 Four Emmy nominations. I mean, that's insane. We talk about starting uh, out as an intern for David Letterman at 22 years old and working his way up to head writer at 29. He talks about working with John Beckerman to create two critically acclaimed series, including the beloved show Ed, which starred uh, Julie Bowen, Tom Cavanaugh, Justin Long, and so many wonderful actors. Our previous mentor, TV director Jason Emsler, actually directed his first episode of television ever on Ed. So I highly recommend you checking out that episode of the first season after this. And Rob won a People's Choice Award and earned another Emmy and WGA nomination for Excellence in Writing for Ed. We also talked about his directorial debut on We Made This Movie in 2012 as well as writing and directing The Fundamentals of Caring, which was the closing night film at the 2016 Sundance Film Festival. The movie starred Paul Rudd, Craig Roberts, and Selena Gomez, and is currently available to view on Netflix, which was great because then I got to see it again recently. And it is such a beautiful film. Highly recommend if you haven't watched it. And Rob gives some behind-the-scenes information on the film and what it was like to go to Sundance. And he included a really wonderful story about a surprise casting alternative who almost was one of the leads of the movie. And uh, I'll give you a clue. He's now incredibly famous. Wasn't famous at the time of this movie, but more famous now. So without further ado, here's Rob Burnett. Welcome to the podcast. What was your first role in entertainment? Well, that you have to kind of define. I mean, I guess I'll take out the third grade play where I was a tremendous lion in the wizard of oz we'll go past there and kind of go to modern day entertainment um (laughs) my first job as i tiptoe up to entertainment when i graduated from college i wanted to be you know a a writer a comedy writer i had no idea i had no connection to the field i knew no one in show business my dad was a dentist in new jersey um so you know i loaded up my car and i drove to los angeles because i just thought that's where show business is. And uh, I got a job at a restaurant called 72 Market Street. It was owned by Dudley Moore, the old actor, yeah. now deceased. Um, and uh, it was a, sort of a fancy restaurant. And I was a busboy and uh, I got fired as a busboy uh, because I was a really bad busboy. It was perfectly understandable. And I thanked them for the job. And then I was so nice in getting firing. And this was a lesson I kind of learned over the years is that I just never had an attitude. I just said, well, I appreciate the opportunity. They said, you know what? You can have this other job. And they gave me this job where I worked 
back by the bathroom. Now this sounds terrible, but this was a much better job of being a busboy. Uh, the bathrooms there were there was there 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 wasn't enough bathrooms for the for the space. So there would be like a big lineup of people waiting to get into these two bathrooms. So my job was to keep people entertained while they were waiting to go to the bathroom. So they called it the Matra P. That was their little their little joke. Um, and it was really one of the most fun jobs I had. Now this is very fringe entertainment, but. I had to entertain people. So I would read trivia questions. I, you know, and, and big famous actors would come in and stuff. It was really remarkable. Um, but my first actual job in real entertainment, I would say uh, when LA kind of fell apart after, I don't know, six or seven months, I sort of thought I'm not really getting anywhere. Uh, I came back East to New Jersey where I grew up, got a job for a newspaper, which I did not like. Um, and then from there decided I've got to try to go for this. And I made a writing submission to the David Letterman show. Mm. Um, and the head writer, Steve O'Donnell, who was just, you know, not only the world's most talented man, but also the world's nicest man actually gave me a call and said, we don't have any writing positions, but we have internships. And I jumped at that and ended up as an intern on the Letterman show. I was 22, maybe I just turned 23 um, the year out of college. And I was working in the talent department for free as an assistant, you know, the lowest level job. And I just couldn't believe my luck that I was in this place. I, I just absolutely uh, adored it. And that was kind of the beginning of my career. From, from then, from there, I, uh, one of the writers, and I wanted to be a writer. There was no change in the writing staff at that point. But one of the writers hooked me up with a comedian named Will Schreiner. And I would write jokes for Will Schreiner. He'd pay me $25 if he used one of my jokes. Uh, and in fact, the first joke that I ever got on television was when Will Schreiner was a guest on the Johnny Carson show. And, and for me, you know, I, I kind of have, we all have, you know, sort of I don't know, five or six snapshots of your career that are, you know, the, the, the moments that you will never forget. And for me, one of those, without a doubt, was Will Schreiner uh, on The Tonight Show sitting, you know, he, 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 he was doing panel. He wasn't doing stand-up. He sat next to Johnny and he delivered my little joke and Johnny cracked up. And I'm, I'm in Brooklyn with my two roommates. And this was just as, as surreal as life ever became for me because I grew up watching Johnny Carson. This was the most, you know, for people my age, that was the thing, you know, that was show business. It was sophisticated. It was cool. Uh, it was everything. And the idea that this man had heard words that I, I wrote down on a piece of paper was, it really was the first time my mind ever, ever exploded. And the fact that he was laughing at it, was oh my god insane um and from there i began writing jokes uh for dave sort of unofficially just sort of submitting monologue jokes um and i remember the first time how does, a, yeah how does that work so when you're when you're starting out and you're you're a writer how does that like you come up with jokes for their monologues you come how does that process work exactly yeah i mean i used to uh i, I was very ambitious when i was uh when i was young um, I, I just had a sense for me that if I didn't find my way into this, my life would be unhappy. You know, maybe, maybe that wasn't true, but that's, that is how I felt. So I always had a great in college. Um, I really was not, I went to a fine, I went to Tufts university is fine school. I was never. I went super, to Brandeis by the way, neighbors. Okay. We used to play in soccer. Um, I, I never was super engaged in, in college because I never kind of figured out how that was going to get me to where I wanted to be. Um, but when I graduated, uh, so the first thing I did actually, if I back up a second, when I graduated college, um, I, I said to a buddy of mine, we got to write a movie. We should just learn how to write a movie and write a movie. So, so we, we wrote a movie. And uh, then I got my internship at, at the Letterman show and uh, and then, yeah, I would every day uh, read the newspaper and I would write, you know, five to seven jokes and submit them, you know, mm. and every once in a while I'd, I'd get one on the air and that was, uh, you know, in incredible. Um, and then what happened was I was sharing an office with a woman named Lori Leonard, who 
then became Lori David. She married Larry David. She's a big environmentalist. And she and I were sharing an office together and she was kind of starting a management company at the time. So I gave her this script that my buddy and I wrote and she read it and liked it. And um, my first writing job, official writing job actually um, was from a, there was a, a big producer at the time named Joel Silver and they had, yeah, and they had bought the rights to uh, this book, this little comedy book called Nice Guys Sleep Alone. And based on our script that we had written, they, they hired my buddy and I uh, wow. to write a movie, which again, that's how I got into the Writers Guild, actually. It wow. wasn't, you know, I wasn't a writer yet on The Letterman Show. And, and bizarrely from there, uh, we were working screenwriters. We, we, we did wow. that movie and I think three or four others, in fact, then I became a writer on on the a writing slot opened up on on the Late Show. Uh, after a long time, I made a submission. A trivia fun fact of my career is that you know they get hundreds of submissions, and uh, this writing slot ended up down to three people. It was a guy named Boyd Hale, who was a kid who was from Oklahoma and a copywriter. Uh, it was me, and it was Conan O'Brien. Um, and, and Boyd Hale got the job. Um, and what I love about this is that Conan is still upset about this somehow, <laughs> even though he's the funniest, most successful human on planet earth. It's still, it's still, I did have occasion to speak to him about it once. And he still can't believe he didn't get that job. Wow. Um, but I did get the next one. Uh, Good. so, uh, that and was, he did all right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and but what was incredible was at, right around that time we were writing. Um, I think we wrote probably three or four movies. Nothing got produced. Mm. We were getting paid to to write movies, um, and then I got a, a different agent who took the very first movie we wrote. And suddenly I got a call, and he said Steven Spielberg wants to meet you guys. And I actually just thought he was kidding. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm 25 years old or whatever it was, and uh, the next thing I know, I'm on a plane going out to California to meet with Steven Spielberg. And there we were, my buddy, Steve Engel and I sitting on a couch and in comes Steven Spielberg. And he, he hired us to write a movie as well. Um, and we did that. So, so I kind of had these sort of dual careers going on. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my, in my twenties, this is what it was for me. I would get up, I lived in Brooklyn. I would get up at five o'clock in the morning. I would take the train, go to my buddy's house, who was a lawyer, uh, said we would work for, I don't know, two or three hours in the morning. I'd go to the Letterman show at 10. Wow. The last one to leave, get on the train to go home. And that was kind of my twenties. You know, it was, it was just, wow. I had no interest in anything that 20 year olds were, were doing, you know, going go to bars and going, you know, girl, I mean, no, I, I, I had plenty of interest in yeah. that, but I just, it wasn't my priority. It was just, I just felt like I had to do this else. This would not go well for me. It's amazing. Where in Brooklyn were you? Um, at that time we lived in Park Slope. This was way before Park Slope was what Park Slope is today. It was super cheap. It was when you couldn't afford Manhattan, you know, now it's its own thing. Um, but yeah, so, so that I'm was in Brooklyn. Kind of, so I figured I'd ask. Oh, you're in Brooklyn. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, it was, so it was great. And, and, uh, and then finally when I was, uh, I don't know, 25 or 26, they, they gave me, uh, a writing job, uh, on the show. And I just, I couldn't believe I was a writer on the David Letterman show. It was, it was, oh my God, I, this, this was, you know, everything I'd ever dreamed about. Um, and then insanely, when I was 29, they made me the head writer, which I just thought. I yeah, ex explain that one for me, because that doesn't happen quite often. Yeah, you know, um, I, I, I wish I could explain it. So this, there weren't a lot of head writers at the show at that time. It, mm. it started with Meryl Marco, who was Dave's, um, uh, girlfriend and the sort of, you know, I think of her as being the kind of the creator of the Letterman show. I mean, she's, I, I never, I, I, I knew her. Um, she was leaving the show kind of as I was coming in, but I was very low level and I was not in the writer's room. So I never worked with her. Right. I'd see her in the hallway and she was very nice and lovely, but she, she was just, uh, just funny and, and smart in, in just, 
you know, in scary ways. I mean, she, she just kind of, I, it's funny because I, 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 and I've told her this, I've had the ability to, to tell her this fairly recently. Um, I think of her as one of my mentors, even though we never really spent time together because her sensibility was so um, strong and pervasive in that Letterman sensibility, D- Dave as well. But I think Meryl really drove so much of that. Um, and that's where I grew up. So it was Meryl and then, and then this guy, Steve O'Donnell, who was, you know, equally uh, astounding as a talent. Uh, he was the head writer when I became a writer. Um, and, and, and those two people, and Dave as well, of course, really sort of formed my sensibility. I was very young and, and, and being around Steve and, and the whole writing staff at that, sh- at that time on that show was pretty incredible. I mean, I, I just couldn't believe I was even in that room. You just learned, you just thought yourself getting better every second you were around these people. They were just so, so smart. And and you just learned quickly. The first thing you think of is that's funny, mm-hmm. throw that out and take the third or fourth thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, because nice. you have to do better. And, and part of what's great about that show is that you have 10 people, 12 people, whatever it is. And a lot of times you're all doing the same task. So if you're writing a top 10 list and you're sitting there, you know that there's 10 or 12 other people, in my case, all smarter and funnier than I am, trying to write the same joke. So the first joke you think of, that's like the obvious joke, you're kind of like, you know, yeah, maybe you'll throw that down, but you know six other people are going to have that. Yeah. So it really kind of pushes you to dig deeper and smarter. And I think that kind of has always stayed with me. I kind of credit that. Um, do you still do that? Do you still think of your, you'll, you know, throw out the first one and go to the third or fourth joke? You know, I, I try to kind of not, I mean, you know, I, I, I still, my DNA was formed at that show. And I think I always try not to settle on the obvious take for, for things, whether it's comedy or, you know, now I'm doing more dramatic writing, right. you know, there's always a sort of a straightforward way to do things that is usually, less good than something inventive. And, mm. and that show definitely pushed me toward that. Um, and, you know, I don't know, Steve had been there for a long time, I think like six or eight years, which is just, <laughs> uh, that's crazy to, to be head writer of that show for that long. Um, and, and he just was amazing and did an unbelievable job. And, uh, you know, I think, and he decided to move on. It was, you know, he had, he had done it and, uh, I guess I looked around the room and for some reason, I think at that time I'd been a, I'd been a writer for maybe three or four years. I was kind of coming into my own a little bit. I was put in charge of the remotes, which is when we would go out and shoot things. Um, and I would say that if, if there was a thing I was best at at that show, not better than others, but best for me, for it would you, probably yeah. have been those. I think that was the thing, the editing of those, the shooting of those for whatever that, kind of fit my my brain yeah, your um, skill set your strengths yeah so I had a lot of success doing that for about a year so when Steve left um you know they they chose me and I I was terrified uh when I got that job I mean I literally they told me on a Thursday I still remember this they called me in uh it was uh, a Thursday night they said you're the head writer I was like oh okay <laughs> And then I, I went away that weekend with my buddies. We had some like birthday weekend thing planned. And I said, guys, you're not going to believe this. I'm the head writer of the David Letterman show. And one of the guys was like, oh my God, what does the head writer do? And I'm like, I have no idea. I actually have no idea what the head writer, the minute he asked that, I, just, I became white in the face and said, I have no idea. And I came back on Monday and Steve was gone. There was no training. Wow. And just like, no two week okay. notice. Yeah. And it was, it was. Because the way the show was sort of structured was that the, the head writer kind of dealt with Dave and being in the studio and then everyone else was mm. here. So you didn't have any, I, when I was doing the remotes, I had my own kind of, you know, contact with Dave that way. But the, the rest of the writing stuff, everything goes through the head writer. So I didn't really know how anything was put together. And I was not particularly good at it at, mm. at first. How'd you learn how to lead? How'd you learn how to delegate and have that... <laughs> And, and organize that room. I think what happened for me, as has happened to me in other moments in my career, is that at some point, desire trumps fear for me. 
Um, I have to kind of get right up to the brink. It happened to me when I first became a writer on the show. Um, here I am, this kid sitting in this room with these very accomplished comedy writers and you have to pitch ideas and I'm terrified and I'm terrified. And then at some point I just think, I, I can't lose this job. Like I have to just do this. And that then takes over. And the same thing kind of happened with when you're head writer, um, you know, you're in a room with a lot of people, funny, talented people. There's a lot of ideas and the one thing you can't be is tentative because if you're tentative, uh, the, the whole thing just kind of goes like this and you just don't get anywhere. And I was very tentative at first. I was pretty young for the job. And, you know, some of these guys have been there longer than I, and I didn't feel comfortable. Probably them, older. A lot of them older. And I didn't feel comfortable saying like, your ideas are no good. Um, the, the analogy that always strikes me that I think is very apt for that is whenever I see kind of the young rookie quarterback come into an NFL game and have to call signals and he's there and there's all these veterans and he's screaming at everybody, you know, this and this, you kind of learn that those guys all need you to scream loudly and clearly and say, this is what we're doing. And I remember the moment was we were down at rehearsal and we had two ideas and we had not really settled on which one we were doing on the show. And it was all kind of falling apart. And at that time, rehearsal was from 2.30 to 4 o'clock. And at 4 o'clock, Dave would just leave rehearsal. He, his schedule was kind of on a train, you know, was never bent. Like, he just did his thing as he should have been. And I at 4 that. o'clock, he leaves, and we don't have a show at that point. We tape at 5.30. There's, we don't have a show. And I've, you know, whatever, 100 crew members and the director and the producers are all now looking at me of like, what are we doing? Like, we haven't settled on this. And I'm, you know, panicking. And I remember going up to Dave's office and saying, uh, I said, what should, we do? What, what should we be doing? And he looked at me and said, this is supposed to work the other way around. Mm. And he turned and walked away. And that was kind of the moment where I said to myself, you know, he's right. You know, it, it is supposed to, I'm supposed to be telling him what we're doing. And that that was the moment when, once again, fear trumped uh, a desire. desire trumped trumped fear. Fear. And, and at that moment, I just said, okay, I'm probably going to lose this job at this point. I felt like I was going to lose the job. And I just said, I'm going to go, go down swinging. And I just did. And I just took charge of it. And I had pretty good success as, as head writer then, you know, we, yeah. that was a, a very fertile time during the show when we went from NBC to CBS and Dave and I became very close and he relied on me a lot. And, and we had a really nice partnership there. So. Yeah. Which led into other ventures and other things as well with worldwide pants productions. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that was just, I'm sure that evolved even more. Yes. Um, okay, great. So I just wanted to ask your pick your brain a little bit about like, what do you think of late night shows right now? Do you watch any of them? I feel like they're so different than when, you know, even just 10, 15 years ago, partly because, a lot of them, I think, are made for short form content. They're made for a YouTube clip. They're made for a social media clip. How do you think that's changed? So I think the biggest difference, there's, there, there's a few huge differences in late night today versus when we were doing it. Um, first of all, I'll start by saying, in some ways, I don't think it's ever been better than it is now. Like when I watch, uh, and they, all, they are all different, and full disclosure, my daughter works for the Jimmy Fallon show. So put that in there. Yeah. Um, but they're all, you know, when I watch all of them, Colbert do one of those monologues, uh, Kimmel doing his thing. Jimmy is talented in a, comp- Fallon is talented in a completely different way than the others. Moving on, you know, Seth Meyers, I think is so smart. Uh, John Oliver, my God, like it's kind of what Samantha B, like what's one after the other, like they're, they're, they're they're really good, you know? Um, So in some ways I think it's never been better. I think the biggest difference, and and there are several, uh, is that in the old days with Carson, with Dave, I think people tuned in to spend an hour with that guy. Right. 
you know, I used to watch Johnny Carson all the time when I was growing up, when I was 12 years old, 13 years old. Um, I loved it. I don't, I can't quote a ton of things from that show. Like I, I, you know, the bits are all kind of sort of intentionally lame. I thought, you know what I mean? And it it wasn't about moments. It was about kind of spending an hour with that person. I think that was the same, you know, granted we had our moments of, you know, memorable bits that we did on the late show that I'm super proud of. Yeah, of Um, But a lot of it was just an attitude of, Dave and you tuned in and it was sort of like in the old, you know, the 1230 show, it had this little clubhouse feel that you were a member of. And it was this whole sensibility, you know, Merrill sensibility, Dave sensibility, Silvadonal sensibility of irony and poking fun at things. Um, but it was much less about the individual bits. Now, I think because number one, there are so many shows and so many choices, which Back then, there weren't, right? Like, everyone watched Johnny Carson because there was three shows on, three right. channels, not even three shows. So now it is, and of course, with all the technology of the internet, YouTube, and so forth, um, that's what they're going for. They're looking for, you know, what's the the viral thing that we, you know, can can make? And sometimes that's a perfectly great motivator. If you have, you know, I think a lot of our remotes that we did um, would go viral today if they were there. Right. Other times where I think you fall a little victim to that is if it's, you know, let's get a celebrity, uh, you know, to put a pie in their face. I'm making that up. Like it's going to go, you know, you get Taylor Swift to put a pie in her face. That's going to go viral. Like why wouldn't it? Is that the highest form of comedy? I don't know. It might be depending on the flavor of the pie, I suppose. Or right, the yeah. I'm not even, I, and by the way, I know from experience, you do so many of these shows, there's room for everything. Yeah. Um, but that's, I think that the essential difference is that there's just so many shows and, and you have to grab for attention. It's, it's, you know, the, the example I always used to use is that the Carson show was like having a giant McDonald's on I-95 with a huge exit ramp, uh, entrance ramp. So all you had to do is serve really nice hamburgers and you were going to be fine. Now people got to really travel to find you. So you, you can't just serve hamburgers. You got to do something bigger and better. And, and by and large, I think they are. I think people will look back at this kind of as the golden age of, of, talk shows. And the person that I give credit to, honestly, is Jon Stewart. I think Jon Stewart is the person that changed talk shows Mm -hmm. because when we were doing it, we weren't writing about anything. We were just being silly. Right. You know, I remember, right. I used to write jokes about, oh, Bill Clinton, you know, eats too many French fries. I mean, it wasn't, you know, and now, you know, Jon Stewart said, you know what, we can do comedy that is really about things. And make political points and it's relevant relevant and incisive and you know maybe if we were still on the air today we would be forced to go in that direction it was just never the thing we did it was just we were very apolitical actually we made plenty of political jokes but it was right but overall yeah it was very apolitical now you know talk show hosts are out jimmy kimmel's you know you know yeah seth myers you know how he stands um yeah so yeah, it's it's a really different it's a different world, different climate. Um, great. So we're at yeah we're at David Letterman, and then you work. Um, I think I mean I'm skipping a little bit obviously, but you started working on the Bonnie Show, right, with Bonnie Hunt. Yes, in 1995. Yes, I. I, I so were you doing first... both at the same time? I couldn't really get like the specific months. Yeah. It. it um. Did it overlap? By that point, we, you know, the, the Late Show had become very successful, like it, beyond anyone's wildest dreams. Um, no one thought we could ever beat the Tonight Show. We came out, premiered at CBS, and was off the charts. CBS was ecstatic. Everyone was very happy. So uh, I was head writer at the time, and yeah, with Dave's blessing, I I created a show with Bonnie Hunt uh, and moved to California. My daughter. Uh, Sydney, the one that now works for the Jimmy Fallon show, uh, was 10 days old and we were on a plane to California. Mm. Um, Yeah, Bonnie and I uh, did a show together. I did not stay super long. It it was, uh, we sold the pilot, did the pilot. I stayed for one or two episodes. um, And then I I just felt Bonnie would be better off by herself um, there. So I ended up coming back but this is all kind of under underneath the worldwide pants 
Got it. So what did you learn from that experience that then contributed to your next show, which you did, which was Ed? Uh, Because I feel like being, I mean, being a head writer for, for a show, for, for one of the most successful shows, obviously a lot of skill sets are the same as being a showrunner of a, of a TV show, but you know, there's obviously differences. So what did you learn, I guess, from. Yeah, it's, it's really different. I, 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 I don't know that I was at Bonnie. I mean, Bonnie's a brilliant, you know, yeah, comedian and a, and a brilliant writer. Um, I don't know that I was lo- there long enough to kind of have have developed a, a, a ton there. But I would say when I came back from Bonnie, I said to my friend John Beckerman, who was one of the writers of the show, who adore, I said, we, we I've kind of seen this. Mm. I think we should try this. We, we should write a show together. Right. So we wrote Ed, which was first um, a half hour single camera mm-hmm. pilot that HBO was a partner in with us. And then what happened was that the late show was kind of in disarray at this moment in time. This was um, 1995. Leno had passed us in the ratings. There was a lot going on. It was a little bit we were a little bit off the rails. Uh, some some guys came and asked me to come back and become the executive producer of the show. Um, so I said, if that's what Dave wants, of course. And we put Ed aside then. We pulled Ed. Um, this was now like 1996. Um, we, we pulled Ed. I asked John to come back and be the head writer with me being the executive producer, and he did. And interestingly, I, I believe that uh, I can't swear to this, but I'm pretty sure that when we pulled Ed from CBS, that is when they picked up Everybody Loves Raymond, which oh. clearly was a, a much uh, <laughs> everyone's lucky on that front, um, because I think CBS kind of felt a need to pick up one of our shows and we had developed Everybody Loves Raymond and they picked up Ed and when they pulled Ed, they were like, okay, we'll take Everybody Loves Raymond. And of course, the success Which, there is yeah um, worked well. It worked. It was I yeah. remember that show fondly. I yes, think. worked worked pretty well. So then I came back and I was the executive producer of the Late Show. You know, for a couple of years. Well, I mean, I remained executive producer until the end, but actively the executive executive producer. And then we revisited Ed with CBS, and by then. At that time, they weren't making single camera half hours. Now oh, that's popular. why. So less. And this was in two thousand, right? This was Before well. This was actually probably like ninety nine, ninety eight. Okay. And Les said, "We're not going to do a single camera half hour. You got to do it as a multi camera." And I didn't want to do a multi cam, mm-hmm. so I just said, well, "What if we make it as an hour?" And he said, "Okay, you can do it as an hour." So oh. we made the hour pilot for CBS, and. Uh, and they passed. They, they didn't buy the show. And we were so sad. But what was strange was that they were kind of trying to hire our cast. They were they lived past on our show, but they loved our cast. Oh. And I'm hearing that they're trying to make a deal with, you know, Tom Cavanaugh and Julie Bowen. And I'm just like, this is doesn't feel right. Yeah. So we through the power of of the late show and Dave. Um, we got the show back from them, which is kind of rare today, but we just had a lot of power and flex at CBS at that point. So they said, okay, you can have the pilot back. Mm. And around town, they were like, well, this is a really nice pilot. How come they didn't buy it? And we're like, we don't know. And then NBC bought it. So we then redid a pilot for NBC. Wow. This was now, uh, and then we premiered in 2000 um, on NBC and got picked yeah. up there. So wow. it, was, it was quite a, quite a story, but a lovely experience all around. Yeah. So what kind of things do you feel like you really learned from that experience in terms of running a show, a a different type of show? Yeah, I I learned a ton. I mean, I learned everything there. Um, You know, I I directed for the first time when I was at Ed. What you, I mean, first of all, being head writer of The Late Show is is pretty good training in a certain way. Yeah. Because you have to communicate an idea or a vision of things to many different departments, right? You're dealing with a lot of different departments. So you learn certain things and you're under a lot of pressure and you kind of learn how to do that as, as head writer. There, there were techniques that I learned as head writer that, that I, I took with me um, to, to add and, and, and beyond just, just of kind of how to deal. I know one, I know, I know one thing I remember very distinctly was uh, there was one day, at the late show, everything was falling apart. We had no, we had David, 
not approved anything, you know, flop sweat, everything, you know. And we had this one tiny idea about a, uh, it was a pamphlet, uh, something, it was like the New York City Cab Commission came out with some like pamphlet that day. So we had a joke pamphlet that we made up, right, with like, you know, jokes. And in the middle of, but this was nothing. This was like a tiny little thing at the desk. We didn't have the whole, the big show. And at one point I get a call in the middle of me trying to, I'm in the writer's room, trying to like, we got to do that. I get this call from someone in graphics and they say, uh, on that pamphlet, what shape do you want the bullet points to be? Do you want them to be circles or squares? And I just thought this can't exist like this. This can't exist. So what I told them, was I said, I want them to be seven point stars. And then they said, well, well, can we just do circles? I go, no, 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 I want seven point stars. And at that moment, I realized that when anytime anyone asked me a question that I thought they themselves should have been answering because it's insignificant, I would then give them the most difficult response possible. So it was literally, you know, what color should the shoelaces on the actor be? Mauve. I want them to be mauve with a little stripes taupe, of green. A little taupe. Exactly. And then if they weren't there in rehearsal, I would then call them out and say, why? And what you then learn is that people stop calling you. It's genius. It's a genius technique. Um, <laughs> but at Ed, when, when John and I started Ed, it was astounding how little we knew. Um, it was like climbing Mount Everest at a windbreaker. Like you just didn't know what you were headed for. You just started going. And I remember the pilot, James Frawley was directing the pilot. I'd never been on a set before. I mean, I'd been on the late Different show. kind of set. Right. I'd never been on a set. I didn't know anything about coverage and masters or any, nothing. I didn't yeah. know. And I remember John and I were standing there. And so he, I remember there was a scene where he shot with uh, Tom Cavanaugh and Janine Garofalo was in one of the pilots at one point. And he shot this, kind of wide master of them in an airport sitting and talking, they're silhouetted and they do a take of it. And, you know, this is the kind of thing where you'd use maybe for the first three or four seconds of the scene before you kind of come in on them, but they're, and they know because they're experienced actors. So they're just kind of phoning it in. They're all just in silhouette. And for all these just kind of want to get into this before we go to lunch. And John and I are like, what the hell are they doing? Like that scene was terrible. Like we're, you know what I mean? And we were so incredibly inexperienced. And, but that being at Ed and being there and seeing that was, was huge for my, my development. And also there were some things that John and I were very experienced with. Like we were experienced writing. We were very experienced editing, even though we had done a different kind of editing, editing remotes. Like I had spent a lot of time in edit rooms so I kind of think when it comes to directing, there are many aspects to it. You're in charge of everything, but I, I kind of think that there are four main pillars to it. It's, yeah. it's writing, it's editing, editing, it's acting, and it's cinematography. I mean, there's other things. I too, get what you're saying. Wardrobe and such, but I think those are the four ones. And I can tell you for me, you know, writing, I've done a lot as John and I we wrote most of Ed ourselves. You know, we had a writing staff that was great, but we never fully connected with them. So we were good there. And the edit room, you know, we spent a lot of time, we edited all the episodes, 80, 80. It's a 80, lot. Yeah. So that's a lot. I, I would argue that I've spent more hours in an edit room than most feature film directors, but for the most accomplished, you know, um, acting, I've never acted. Um, I don't think it's a particular strong suit of, of mine to kind of, relate to actors. Um, all I can really offer them is a, a clear understanding of what I'm after, but in terms of getting into their technique of how they do that, I can't, it's a weakness. I wish I had taken an acting class, but why I, not take one now? I, I should. And I, I, I would think about it. I, I, I would actually think about doing that. And cinematography, like the camera stuff is by far the weakest thing for me. I, you know, I'm not great with cameras and lenses and all of this, but I, I do have a strong visual aesthetic, so mm. I can more or less just, if I have the right cinematographer and like on fundamentals, which I guess we'll get to eventually, I had a great one um, at Ed, Mike Slovis was a great one. Rob Draper was another one. Uh, you know, there I can just say, here's what I want to see. And then they can figure out how to do it. But Ed is, Ed was, Ed was like making a feature film every week. You know, it was the, the it was a $2 million budget. We shot on film. Um, mm. from a directing standpoint, I have to say 
shooting anyone that's directed one hour weekly television can tell you that there is nothing more demanding or grueling than that because you're shooting, you know, eight pages a day and you quickly, you learn efficiency. Like when you go in and you first going to direct, you want to, you know, you think like, okay, here it is. Here comes Martin Scorsese has entered the room. And then very quickly you realize, oh, a very big part of my job here is to realize well, if I have those two people sit next to each other, then I don't have to turn around to shoot the other way. I can save this amount of like, and that becomes, that's filmmaking, by the way, like that's what it is. No matter what you're doing, you know, if you're JJ Abrams shooting Star Wars, I, I mean, I guess I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure he would like to have one more take too. And at some point can't like, it's just, it's I'm a sure. finite thing that you have to kind of do. Right, right, and right. one hour television is, is the best training possible for that. Well, it's, it's interesting. Cause I was looking up Ed, I was looking at the IMDb page and I saw um, a director who was also on the podcast. His name is Jason Ensler and he's directed multiple shows. You know, he's currently mm-hmm. working on um, Hulu's Love Victor and Ed was the first episode of television that he ever directed. Oh, wow. I didn't realize so I wrote that. to him yeah. and I was like, how was your experience? He was like, it was a great experience. And he was talking about the people involved and uh, it was nice to, to look back and go, that was his first experience directing as well. Yeah, that's a nice thing about doing a show like that. There's a lot of a lot of first experiences. I mean, some big ones like people like Justin Long, you know, we we discovered amazing uh, Jennifer Goodwin, you know, we literally she was living with her mom and sent a tape. And in, they did a and, movie together that went yes. really well. Yeah, it yeah. was really great. I mean, that's kind of amazing. And and then there's weird ones too that I wouldn't have even remembered, but I think like John Krasinski's first part was on Ed as a day player. Oh. Um, the, the guy from uh, uh, Big Bang, uh, Jim, Parsons, Jim Parsons, I think was on Ed. As a, and Julie Bowen had a set, like another huge swing out the gate with uh, with Modern Family. I mean. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's uh, yeah. It's, it, Good it, cast. It, it's, yeah. Good casting. The cast, there. the cast was great and also so nice. Tom Cavanaugh and Julie are they're the two nicest people on earth. And so when you have number one and number two on the call sheet, that it just, it goes all the way. It trickles down. down. But I think it also comes from, from the showrunner. Yeah. John and I are, are very gentle fellows. So between us, I suppose, but really on set, those two, it was, there was just no room for anyone to have an attitude. There was just a really happy, it was a great set. The work, the workload um, was, was crushing and demanding, but the actual, there was pure joy there. You know, we were out in a little bowling alley in New Jersey. We had our own soundstage. The network, we loved the network executives at NBC um, and the studio. Uh, Aaron Goff was uh, smart and supportive and, and nice. And uh, Carolyn Cassidy, and they're both now huge executives yeah. at various places. But they were, and Perry Simon from Viacom, like everything about that show was set up for joy you know that's great the workload was was difficult but i i just treasure that Mm. that whole experience more than anything that's great i mean not everyone gets to say something like that so that feels that's nice that's nice to hear no it was Um, nice and i'm still best friends with with tom and 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 julie is just never never has been nothing but lovely she flew in and spoke at my daughter's uh, was the speaker at my daughter's graduation wow She's just been, uh, she's just one of those great humans as well. So, and all the way down. So, yeah. I think, I think Jason also said that the episode he directed, Jim Gaffigan was the guest star. So uh-huh. there's another yeah. one right there. Jim's a great guy too. Yeah. 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 So then in 2012, you wrote the movie, we made this movie. Had you yep. always wanted to transition into, I mean, you've been writing there's films. But right there. There it there's is. There's a poster right behind you. Yeah. Yep. Well, we can kind of do it like this. There's- yeah, you're right. We'll just... <laughs> Oh, you, you skipped over nights. I skipped. Prosperity. I did because I only have a certain amount of time. And so right, I, we I went right to that. But let's talk about the Nights of Prosperity first. It's up to you. you know, whatever you want to talk about is fine yeah. with me. No, um, it's all good. You talk about both of them. I just wanted to know more about, I mean, I'd known you had written films prior too, but these were the ones that you were really like, you know, taking more of a lead on and directing. And so tell me about that. Yeah. Um, we made this movie. It was, it was such a fun thing we made it for a million dollars a very small movie um no celebrities in it i'm still best friends with 
two of the cast members, Michael Roman and Arthur Meyer. Michael Roman just had a baby. My daughters are godmothers. I mean, you know, we, we don't let anyone go in the Burnett family. Yeah, if we yeah. like you, you're in, you're in for life, whether you like it or not. Um, <laughs> and Arthur is one of the great, greatest men alive. He oh. used to work for Fallon as well and super talented. Anyway, it was, a, yeah, it was, a, it was a lovely experience. Um, I haven't seen the movie in a long time. You know, I don't, it felt like we, we, I'm always pretty critical of, of this, of our stuff, of our stuff. Um, it, it, it felt like it was okay. I need to kind of see it again to kind of really assess it, but for what it was our first crack, you know, getting cameras, shooting, you know, running gun, a million dollars is just not a lot to make a movie. It, it was another, another experience. I just would never trade. It was, it was great. And talk about, you know, everything we're talking about directing, that comes into ha- play huge when you're making a movie on that budget where you're just like, okay. Yep. You have to be you know, as efficient as possible. Yeah. You got to just do it because there's no time, you know? Right. And, and that goes right to, I'll move down the list for you to fundamentals of caring. Now it's next. Which, you know, I, for me, it was crazy because I, I, so I shot, I asked my agents to, to send me books. I want to adapt a book. I just thought this would give me a bit of a tailwind. Mm. First book they sent me was this book called the revised fundamentals of caregiving by Jonathan Edison. And I thought, Oh my God, this is it. I want this one, but like, you can't take the first one. So I read like 20 other books and I (laughs) I really want the first one. And I optioned the book with worldwide pants, right? No, 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 I did it. I I did it personally. Um, and wrote the script and this was right as the late show was coming to an end. Mm. Uh, I shot the movie in uh, the whole thing came together. It was sort of a dream. I gave it to Paul Rudd, who I didn't really know, but we kind of had crossed paths and, and he said he would do it. And and once that happens, it's like, Oh my God, everything's, you know, you're fell into place. Yeah. All the people, all the financing comes in. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was amazing. And yeah, we had every, you know, to play the part of Trevor, we had everyone in Hollywood wanting to do it. In fact, the, the people I turned down for that movie um, isn't, or embarrassing. Um, uh, Timothy Chalamet, I passed over for Craig. Um, wow. Yeah, insane. Um, but uh, how do you remember that one? Because that wasn't, you know, he was well, young at the time. Because Timothy, it was between Timothy and Craig. It was that, like, yeah, I spent like four hours in my office with Timothy wow. preparing him for, for the chemistry read. Paul was coming up from Atlanta and he was going to read with Timothy wow. and Craig and, and one other actor. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So Timothy. What did that, deci- I mean, you don't have to say, but like, what, would, what did that decision come down? Was it just chemistry? Was it essentially that? Was it a bunch it was of just, it, For me, it was, it was Craig I just thought Craig was perfect for this role. Yeah. Um, Timothy is obviously talented, amazing, He's unbelievably great. There was a certain dryness to Craig that I thought was going to work really well with yeah. Paul. And with Timothy, it was a little bit more of him pushing outward. It's, it's, it's more of like a rhythm. It's like a music I thing. It's hard for me to describe it, but I just felt like Craig and Paul together were going to be, and I kind of stand by it. I I, I think, I mean, you know, they were fantastic together. Yeah, in the film. It just, worked really well. Yeah. I thought they were great. And Timothy probably would have been great too, but it just would have been different. Just different. And, and yeah. that's not, yeah, I completely get it. And then with Paul, because, you know, Paul's one of those actors that is so good at both drama and comedy. I mean, he's yeah. such a funny guy, but especially in this movie, his humor comes out in a very different way. I mean, a lot of it comes from Craig and then he feeds off of it a tiny bit. How yeah. was that dynamic in terms of working well, it's with Paul? A, I and- mean, it was a dream. I mean, Paul is, I mean, first of all, he's a super nice guy, which is, you know, that's yeah. that's bonus and you don't often get that, but he is he is a genuinely nice person, but wildly talented. I mean, he he was so helpful to me, not just on screen. I mean, just in terms, you know, he had notes on the script that were, tremendous he you know that that the 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 slim jim scene that's really funny in the movie you know i had a version of that but he he had lived i mean i give him all the credit for that he he's really the one that turned that into what it was um my version you know was much less than what what he brought to it and and you know and then there's moments where he funny like as a writer you know you're you're writing this stuff for months and there's some stuff you know he just comes off off the top of his head and you're just like you son of a bitch. Like I yeah. just in one second, you know, uh, surpass what I've just done for six months, but, but he can, and he did, did, and he's, 
and he's great. And I think I think we have a similar sensibility, you know. So I was never fighting against the sensibility. It was always and Craig as well going in. It was always like, look, the, the tragedy in this movie is there. We don't need to lean into it. Yeah. It's there. So we play against it all the time because the pathos. Smart. We're never going to get away from that. And and that was never a fight, you know. For and, and so Paul, he plays everything real, even when he's being funny. You know what I mean? So, and, and that's yeah. my sensibility as well. Yeah. And, you know, I was super happy. The, the movie got, you know. I mean, it huge did so laugh. well. But, yeah. I mean, it did really well. People like it. And, and also, you know, it got, when we screened this movie, so this is like a whole other, you know, so I shot the movie in February, came back to the late show for March, April, May, when the show was going off the air. And then the show went off the air and it was like, woo we're done. And I went right into the edit room. No hiatus so I was for you. As exhausted as I've ever been in my life during this stretch and finished editing the movie. And then, you know, we sold the movie. The movie made money crazily for my investors, which was really nice. Netflix bought it. We're the closing night film at Sundance. And here I am. I've just finished the late show. You know, what an experience, how lucky I was to have that job. And from there, now at that stage of my life to walk onto the Eccles theater as a director at Sundance to present your movie as the closing night film in front of 1200 people. I mean, I hate to say it, but like, that's right there with, with anything else I've experienced in my stupid, lucky career to be a, to be a writer director at Sundance is like nothing else. It's like they, it's like design. It was hilarious. I mean, I'm just like looking at Paul and Selena Gomez. It was like, sorry guys, like the Canadian goose, you know, jacket they're giving away. They're giving it to me. Like, I'm, you know, this never, it's like the one little loophole of show business, right. where the person behind the camera, I'm sure they have a hundred of them at home. Right. Themselves. But like at that one moment, you're the guy. You're the uh, and the echelon. It's, it's lovely. And that, that, that experience was just, it was the best. Everything about it was great. God, that sounds amazing. I mean, I love what you said earlier also about just letting the, the pathos speak for itself and not trying to lean into it, just kind of play against it. And I feel like actors get that tip a lot too, where if you come in and your energy is one thing, you don't need to play into that for a role. You almost want to play against it. And I feel like that that's what that's what came for me then. It was like, you don't want to, if the scene, but it's also the same thing with writing. Sorry, I'm just thinking aloud now. It's also the same with the writing. If the writing is there and the writing says one thing, you don't need to play into it. You don't need to try to be the detective and have the whole thing. It's it's there. That's exactly right. I mean, look, the, you know, I have a lot of theories on, on, on writing and such and making films. And at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're giving information to an audience. And the question is how you dole out that information and how much information and how hard you hit that information. Like that's all a movie is, right? That's every story you ever tell. That's all you're doing, right? You're like, here's, you know, I walk down the street. That's a piece of information. Then a guy on the bus came up. That's another. And you're kind of deciding how to give that out. Now, you know, in movies, you're not just giving out narrative information, you're also giving out emotional information. So the hardest thing in making a movie, I think, is because audiences are all different, right? And people interpret things in all different ways. So a lot of times it's, you know, how hard do I need to hit this thing? If I hit it too hard, then a certain audience member is going to be like, okay, I get it. And I've now it's diminished. If I don't hit it hard enough, an other audience member is not going to get it at all. So you have to kind of like find that sensibility of like, here's what I'm going to do. And you know what? I'm writing a movie about a kid in a wheelchair and a guy who has, you know, had this horrible tragedy with his son. You're going to understand that this is sad. So why do I need them to be sad? I need them to be funny because then you have everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. The other part's going to, it'll come and there'll be a moment when we get there. You know, when, what I love about fundamentals and what attracted me to the material is that all of the drama of that movie has happened before the movie starts, right? Mm, you don't get the true. scene where Craig's diagnosed. You don't get the scene with Paul, you know, 
running over his children. Spoiler alert. But you get the divorce papers right away. You get Yeah, the- it's like it's all kind of happened. And now it's and now it's kinetic energy, yeah. it's potential energy. And and but that's the whole movie. It's just mm. how can the if these guys can just grow this much, just decide to live, they've given up on life. If they can just engage this much, that's heroic. And I from feedback, I think what people like about the movie is they kind of feel like, well, if those guys can do it with their problems, you know, I should be able to do it with my little problems. And that's, that's wonderful. You know, beautifully said, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about worldwide pants. What I was interested in is when I, when I researched you guys, you, I mean, worldwide pants at the time and probably still does have all the, like the rights to the archival footage, which I believe is not something that's done right now. Like, I feel like there's a lot of like the late night shows I believe are owned directly by the network. These That's days. right. So what was that like? I mean, is it just because they learned maybe like the networks learned, okay, we should probably get the rights to that now or. No, it was, it was really, really what happened was when, when uh, networks always own these shows, same like the today show, all these kind of strip shows are always owned by the network. Dave had so much leverage when he was leaving NBC back when, well, Leno got the Tonight Show and Dave was leaving the 1230 show. Of course, everybody wanted him. CBS, ABC, Fox, um, a syndication deal, all of that. So, you know, CBS had no late night franchise at that time. They were running old movies. Um, as part of that deal, uh, Dave got ownership of the show. So it was a completely different, uh, different business altogether. model. You know, yeah. like the, the way, you know, when we were at NBC at the 1230 show, we were employees of NBC or G at the time, you know, they would pay our salaries. They had people in the office watching how much money we spent on things and so forth. When we at CBS, we owned the show. So basically CBS would write us a big check and we would have to give them a certain number of shows. And that was it. You know what I mean? So we, we own it. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I know you know that, but I just remember reading that going like, that's not, you don't yeah. see that. So yeah, it was um, all a function of Dave's leverage at the that's time. Amazing. Just Good was to know. Such yeah. So I only have a couple more questions. One you already answered, which is, I always ask who are some of your mentors? Sorry, you already got that out of the way. What are some things you're working on now that you can talk about? I guess I have a few things going on, but the one that's most current is uh, I just finished writing something for topic pictures. They're the people that did spotlight among other things. Um, And a a company called Epic who had the rights to this incredible magazine story written by a guy named Ethan Waters. It's this, it's a big departure for me, which I'm excited about because it's a very dramatic story. It's not, it's not comedic at all. Um, And it's, it's about a woman named Frances Jolet who was a an activist lawyer in the late 60s and she combines with a prisoner inside of the Texas Department of Corrections and the two of them uh, against all odds uh, form this alliance and manage to topple the at the time monolithic Texas Department of Corrections um, but I'm it's it, this article is about a 20 minute read and worth reading. It's in Texas monthly um, because it's hard for me to do it justice in describing it. So originally I wanted to do it as a movie. Epic said, no, this has to be a limited series. And I kind of agreed with them because it's just so much, there's so much material. So that's what we're doing. So I made a deal with topic to write the pilot. I wrote the pilot. It's now probably going to be presented to, uh, to cast. That's, nice. kind of, that's kind of where we are. And so, would you direct that as well? Uh, yes, I would. So exciting! I'm gonna have to read yeah. the article. Yeah, you should I'm definitely read it. It's it, you'll you'll you you'll be like, wait, what? What? And incredibly, no one's heard of it. So yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a great story. So I have that. I have this other show idea. I sort of just recently, I was kind of very adamant with my agents that I didn't want to do television mm. because I just I'm still a little bit from the Ed experience. I'm just like I don't want to have to do that much work, but it's changed so much now that you can do, you know, six episodes, eight episodes, not 22 one hour episodes. So I'm just starting to kind of entertain the slippery slope was the Texas prisons one, which would be like an eight, eight episode miniseries. I have another show idea that would also be a limited series that that, that would be a a full series actually. So, yeah, but I'm, I'm kind of in the process now of, 
of uh, pitching this to uh, to actors. Yeah, you might so, as well get another Paul Rudd type actor attached to your financing. All that stuff will be easy again, too. Yes, it'll be great. <laughs> Do just a curiosity about how you find or get inspired by work. In this case, the in, previously it was is the magazine article, but do you look, you know, do you look at books? Do you come up with your own ideas? Do you watch movies and get an idea? Do you re- just read and want to adapt? How does it work in terms of what you're yeah, inspired to do? The answer is all of those things. I think, I mean, I, I kind of, I, I have original ideas that I just, I don't know how they come, but I just like, oh, this feels like something I want to write about. For me, I'm usually attracted. Everyone's attracted to different things. For me, I'm always attracted to theme, you know, just the, just the kind of the emotional bottom of pieces. So for me, it always starts as some kind of feeling, you know what I mean? Fundamentals, by the way, you know, for me, my access into that was my best friend uh, passed away from ALS uh, 10 or 12 years ago now. And it was the first time I ever lived through something like that. And I always wanted to write about it, but never could figure it out. And there was something about fundamentals. I'm just like, this is that thing. It's just like, oh, it's not the drama. It's the everyday of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where original stuff comes for me. And I don't know when or how that happens, but it just strikes me all of a sudden. And then, yes, I'm constantly getting stuff from my agents, be it, you know, articles or books. And then also I get scripts, you know, that need directors and I'll read those scripts and, you know, most of them I don't like. And then, and then some I do. And then the ones I do, sometimes I can't get because there are bigger directors <laughs> than me. So I need a few more movies under my belt to get some of those. So it's, it's really every, every avenue that you just mentioned is how I you know, I say kind of yes to everything at this point. Do you want to direct like a one episode of TV type thing? Or you're like, I don't really have an interest in doing it. I that. would. I mean, I, I love directing a lot. Um, it's to me, it's like the most fun thing. And I haven't really pursued that. There was a, actually a couple of years ago, I was offered a pilot and I said yes to it. And then unfortunately the shooting dates or when um, I had planned to take my family to the Galapagos and I couldn't, I just couldn't, I had to go on vacation. So I didn't do it. But so, so the answer is I'm not actively pursuing that, but I think for the right thing, sure. I, yeah. I would do it. I, you know, the thing about directing is it's kind of like hours in the cockpit. You know what I mean? Like you, you just want the cameras. You want to be, I love it. I, first of all, I just love doing it. It's so fun. And the more you can do it, the more, you know, my son was shooting a, uh, his final film project for <laughs> for school and he asked me to operate the camera this was like last night and i'm just like oh this is great okay let's go <laughs> like, yeah. i'm shooting him in the house and i'm excited about it so yeah i, oh, I, I love that. it you like yeah. the collaborative process of like shooting the thing well it's, like, you know, it's the opposite look you know this is see this room this is kind of where i spend most of my time writing in that chair right there <laughs> nice. and you know there's not a lot of people here in fact it's like those people in the poster and like that's it so when you get on set it's like oh my god this is so fun and plus there's free food so come on it's win it's a win-win yes and then final questions the final question i've been giving to people on this season what is your definition of success yeah, that's a great, that's such a great question. I, you know, it's funny. I heard Alec Baldwin to define this at one point and it really caught my attention because this was, I think, before 30 Rock. I remember hearing him say that he considered himself a failure, and I, which was mind boggling to me. And he said that in order to be a success, you have to have a, either a critical or commercial roaring success. I might be bastardizing the wording a little bit, but that's kind of what he said. That's really interesting to me. I think for me, I maybe, maybe I'm slightly less ambitious. I would like one of those things. And, you know, I've been attached the, the late show, I think was one of those things. Although, you know, I don't know how much of that exactly was mine. I certainly was one of the people pushing the ball up one the hill. The big, uh, large role people. You know, I, I was, I was there, <laughs> um, but I, I think honestly, for me, it's, I have two, I think I have two definitions. One is I like making something that I'm proud of. So like, I'm very proud of that. I, I love that this exists yeah. and you know, I can, it's one of the things that, that that's disappointing about the late show for me, frankly, because that the nature of talk shows is that they're just gone. You know what I mean? Like I can't really, even if I kind of dig up an old remote and show it to my kids, it's just not, 
you know, it's, it's, it doesn't really, it's nothing, but this, mm. I, like I can show my grandkids this and I think they're going to probably like it. You know what I mean? So let's just say I, for those listening, he's pointing to a poster of the fundamentals of caring. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> Sorry. I forgot. That's right. I am pointing to the fundamentals of caring. I keep <laughs> for, for all my visual aids on this thing was a, were a huge mistake. So that, so that's one, one thing for me is just to create something nice. The bigger career success for me really, you know, I, I, I've won plenty of silly show business awards, Emmys, you know, and, and I, and I'm grateful for them. I, I don't mean to, I'm not cynical about them. It's like what a lovely experience, but you know, they don't really, they are what they are. The, the thing that really matters to me is I would love to get to a place where I can consistently work, you know, mm-hmm. to me, success, the Cone brothers, you know, uh, you know, and, 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 Directors like that, where when the Coen brothers, you know, Woody Allen, you know, aside from everything else going on with Woody Allen, just as, a, as an entity, as a director, you know, when you get to that point where you can get cast in your movies because people just, you have a reputation, people want to work with you, Martin Scorsese, Clint Eastwood, there's me, there's several, Quentin Tarantino, and, you know, obviously, I'm not comparing myself to Wes those Anderson. people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, those are the big famous directors. I don't need that level. I just want to be such that if I want to get an actor in my movie, I have a real good chance to do it. Um, and I think that just comes down to, to, to merit. You know, I, I feel like it's fair. I just feel like I gotta, you know, do, uh, do one or two things that are amazing and then you get there. And if you yeah. don't, then you don't, you know? Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend in entertainment you know would love it. Let me know what you've learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram at Mentors on the Mic. I love reading your messages. Uh, you can also find me at, at Michelle Simone Miller on Instagram. On both accounts, I'll be sharing even more information about our mentors. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. It makes it easier for people to find our podcast. And I love reading your reviews. So thank you so much. And I'll see you next week.